Hello and welcome to Paleo Cinema Podcast 193. My name is Terry Frost and this time we're doing a couple of what could be called women's films. The first one I'm going to do is Move Over Darling from 1963, starring Doris Day and James Garner. And there are kind of personal reasons why I'm doing that and I'll explain more about that a little bit later. Then we move on to one of the biggies of 1961, Breakfast at Tiffany's, starring Audrey Hepburn, George Peppard, Patricia Neal and Buddy Ebsen. I'm going to talk about them from two viewpoints, one of which is how they were perceived at the time and how we can kind of deconstruct them and see what they're really like now. So sit back, I'll get the contact details out of the way and get the show started. Paleo Cinema Podcast is a podcast of classic movie appreciation. It appears every two weeks, and the only rule is that the movies have to be more than 20 years old. Probably not going to do genre films, because genre films go over to the Martian Drive-In podcast, but nonetheless, that's the rule. More than 20 years old. You can contact and offer feedback several ways. The first one is the new feedback email address, feedbackpaleo, P-A-L-E-O, at gmail.com you can go to the paleo cinema cafe on facebook and leave feedback there and get updates or you can go to paleo-cinema.blogspot.com and listen to the episodes there and put feedback through this podcast may contain adult materials so please don't listen to it when children are around or when you have your granny over Okay, so how is everybody? It's still cold here. It's been cold and wet. I haven't been able to do a lot of stuff outside, but it's getting warmer and the days are slowly getting longer and that's how things go. And so I'm kind of cool with that. Sometimes though in life you've got to savour the smaller pleasures. And for me one of those small pleasures is I've got a new coffee grinder. I've got a nice new burr grinder. Uh, We got a little bit of a windfall, so we invested it in kitchen hardware. And burr grinders, in case you don't know, are the kind of coffee grinders that grind all of the particles the same size. They're very kind of high-tech and intense. But one of the things you've got to do with a burr grinder, particularly when you're a bit fussy like I am about coffee, is you've got to dial in the grinder, it's called. And that means a couple of things. First off, the coffee grinder has a duration. So you put the pour to filter that little basket that clips onto your espresso machine underneath the burr grinder. And you've got to get the duration right. So you've got to have the burr grinder grind for exactly as long as it takes to put the suitable amount of coffee into the portafilter. So you've got to dial that in for a start. Again, you can waste some coffee doing that. Then the other thing you've got to do is the fineness of the grind. You've got to dial that in too. And that's another setting that you've got to kind of set up. So between the two, you've got to triangulate the perfect coffee. First off, the portafilter duration's got to be right so you don't waste coffee. Then you've got to make sure that the grind is fine, but not too fine. If it's too fine, the water won't filter through the portafilter. If it's not fine enough, the water will go through, but you get a, a bad cup of coffee. So over the last week, I've been kind of dialing in the grinder, and that's a lot of fun. Uh, you know, you kind of it's like a taste testing for coffee, which is not a bad thing. And because I'm an espresso man, uh, I get to get incredibly wired with caffeine while I'm doing the necessary scientific work to get the coffee just right. And I've got it dialed in. This afternoon, I drew a cup before I started the podcast because caffeination is such an important thing to podcasting. 
and it was just right so i'm quite pleased with it now i've got it dialed in if anybody touches the settings i will kill them but allowing for that the coffee grinder is where it needs to be and i'm feeling quite happy about it the other thing i've done was i bought a fire pit uh, because the weather is still quite cold i decided i wanted to have a way of having an open fire outside the house and so i invested in an above ground fire pit it's a great big metal dish on a stand that you can kind of have an open fire in so i'm pleased with that too i bought some firewood i bought some fire starters i've assembled the fire pit and anytime i want to go outside and live on a primitive level just gazing into the flames and sipping a very well made espresso i can do it now so not unhappy with either of those things which brings me to something I'm kind of of mixed feelings about, and that is the movies that I've watched since the last time I podcasted. And I'll be honest with you, they're a mixed bunch, but um, here we go anyway. I did see a good documentary that I enjoyed, which is called Drunk Stone Brilliant Dead, the story of the National Lampoon. And it's basically an oral history with pictures of the making of the magazine The National Lampoon. Uh, men of a certain age, such as myself, will have will know the national lampoon had a lot of fun reading it it was really an enjoyable and disturbing read at times and they interview the people who are involved with it who are involved with the national lampoon radio hour and the national lampoon albums and the creation of national lampoon people like pj o'rourke's in there um chevy chase is in there basically you know the the usual suspects and i really enjoyed national lampoon i used to read it back in the 80s um which is past its heyday but there was some really good stuff um john hughes was writing for it for instance at that time and there was some really cool stuff uh that i really enjoyed in there the combination of cartoons and satirical things really uh helped define my sense of humor in some ways which means it's got a hell of a lot to answer for uh let's see what else watch because it's one of sally's great passions in life i did watch Sharknado The Fourth Awakens the fourth of the Sharknado movies not as good as number three but um, has had a little bit of fun it had a lot of cameos in there I think and here we go with this one you ready it's Jump the Shark I think that unless number five which they are definitely going to make because these things have become something of a cult phenomenon unless number five is really going to be killer I think that basically the franchise is gone. Not that I'll particularly miss it, but I'm sure Sal will shed a tear if the Sharknado franchise ever goes away. Let me have a look. What else have I watched? Um, yeah, so we've got a new streaming service, as I may have mentioned before, called Stan, which is um, kind of a, an Australian-based Netflix. And so I watched Murder on the Orient Express, the big ensemble movie from the mid-1970s, which has got Sean Connery, Albert Finney plays L.Q. Poirot in it, um, Martin Balsam's in it, Lauren Bacall, host of fantastic stars, and it's a good story too. Beautifully shot. It's got a fantastic soundtrack by Richard Rodney Bennett. And it was good to revisit it. I hadn't seen it for a couple of decades. But Murder on the Orient Express really works. Once you know the kind of ending of it there's a certain amount of mystery that goes away but just watching the actors play against each other is great fun anthony perkins is in it as well uh just a hell of a lot of good actors so um i watched that and enjoyed it and then i saw a documentary 
on Netflix called Small is Beautiful, this tiny house documentary. And it's about people who build tiny houses on wheels, mostly around Portland, Oregon, and why they chose that as a lifestyle and how it's a way of getting your own space at a time when buying property is beyond the means of a lot of people. And not always, because um, one of them is a doc. One of the people involved is a doctor, and she has other personal reasons for kind of living in a tiny house on wheels. It's not actually a um, caravan or a, a trailer. It's a little bit more elaborate than that. People tend to build them themselves, and they very much personalise them and uh, live in them. And yeah, you know, it was kind of nice. It was a nice documentary because. You got to see the reasons why people do this sort of thing, and it was it'd be kind of groovy to own a tiny house, maybe as a second house for travelling in or somewhere off away from home. But um, I couldn't see myself permanently living in one because, for a start, it would be full of Blu-rays and DVDs, and there wouldn't be too much room for anything else. And I like having a certain size kitchen too when I'm in the mood to cook, which is not always. But when I'm in the mood to cook, I like knowing that there's all sorts of different appliances and mortars and pestles and all sorts of other stuff around for me to do kitchen alchemy with. And that wouldn't really be possible in a tiny house. But all, you know, all strength to the people who choose that for a lifestyle, and I understood them a little bit better by watching that documentary. Then for the ABC local radio NT gig, which I'm now doing with Rebecca McLaren while Liz is on maternity leave and by the way she had a son lovely looking little kid uh, mother son and um, the father Adam are doing fantastically well and it's really nice to see them all very happy because um, Liz and I did the uh, ABC Darwin gig for a couple of years and we may well do it again when she gets back from maternity leave but it's really nice to have her um, have that happiness so uh, for the ABC gig anyway with Rebecca we did Super, the 2010 James Gunn movie starring Rain Wilson and Ellen Page about a vigilante superhero. And we, we both enjoyed that. We had a hell of a lot of fun with it. And we talked a little bit about the career of James Gunn, how he never made a movie that had been really successful. He made Super for $2.5 million. Next movie he makes costs $270 million, not $2.5 million, $270 million and ended up making over a billion dollars, and that movie was, of course, Guardians of the Galaxy. So we talked about that. We talked about the kind of um, punk sensibility of James Gunn as a movie maker and had a good time. We had such a good time that between us, we decided next time we're doing the gig, which is in a week and a half from now, we're going to do Suicide Squad, which I saw on the weekend, but I'll talk about Suicide Squad in a few minutes. The other movie, I, one of the other movies, which I didn't, didn't particularly enjoy, was Nurse 3D with um, Paz de la Huerta as a psychotic nurse. And, um, yeah, I, I think the great idea for a movie, um, you know, like a, a psycho nurse who goes around slashing and killing people, done in a humorous vein can work. But the big problem, of course, is that Paz de la Huerta can't act. So you've got a protagonist trying to play this kind of basic instinct type nurse and the actor playing that particular role even though she's a striking looking woman and gets her kid off regularly really hasn't done the hard yards as far as honing her talent let's be kind and say that so um yeah i watched that but 
didn't particularly enjoy it. Uh, so I was surfing through Stan, the web, you know, the streaming service, and Stan's got a really nice back catalogue of classic films. And so I rewatched a movie I've talked about on the podcast twice, in fact. The Third Man with Joseph Cotton, Alita Valley, Orson Welles, Trevor Howard, and I enjoyed it again. Every time I see that movie, there's a little bit more I pick up and I go, okay, there's that little bit. Maybe I wasn't paying attention then. And just the structure of it's nice. The setting in post-war Vienna is really interesting. The character actors, they get involved in it. The use of light and shadow. Um, Orson Welles, of course. And more subtly, Joseph Cotton playing Holly Martins. I think Joseph Cotton doesn't get enough love for his acting in this movie as well. And Trevor Howard's in there. Bernard Lee is in there. M from the early James Bond films is in there, playing a kind of adjutant character. And um, yeah, rewatching it, I enjoyed it. I'd rewatched it less than a year ago, but I rewatched it this time and enjoyed it at least as much as I did a year ago, which is probably one of the hallmarks of a really good film. Which brings us to a movie that isn't Suicide Squad. Well, one of the things that pisses me off in movies is people who use kind of obvious music for various scenes in a film. And Suicide Squad pissed me off right from the start because in three minutes it used, you know, Fortunate Son by Creedence Clearwater Revival. I started the joke and you don't own me. Um, right at the start, and I thought, obvious stuff. And yet they continued on with it. The music wasn't appropriate for what they were trying to say. And... Tonally, this movie is all over the place. I'm not going to talk too much about it because Rebecca and I are going to talk about it on the radio. But, yeah, it's tonally all over the place. There's a couple of good bits of acting. Viola Davis is very good as Amanda Wallace. She really nails that role. Um, Margot Robbie is as Carly Quinn. Gives it a best shot, but the character isn't right based on the comics. Harley Quinn is basically a, a tragic character and her story arc in the comics is a woman who eventually takes control over life after having an abusive boyfriend, in this case the Joker. And they don't really know that most of it most of Harley Quinn is there for what feminists call the male gaze. She's wearing tight shorts and tight tops and playing kind of dangerous sexy and Margot Robbie is very good in the role. But it really isn't the character that female fans of Harley Quinn, the character, really appreciate. And that, you know, is a problem. The other problem in the movie, the rather big problem, is Jared Leto as a Joker. I said it on somebody's Facebook page, it may have been the gentleman guys, Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, during a discussion of Suicide Squad. I said he was about as scary as Pikachu, the Pokemon. Really uh, doesn't work. It's, you know, he's trying hard to be edgy and nasty and dangerous and sadistic and crazy but doesn't work for me it really didn't um Heath Ledger's Joker of course is the benchmark for that kind of thing because essentially he was an enigma you really didn't know what he would do how he would do it um he really was a human being to whom you couldn't relate because the crazy ran too deep in him. Like what Kane said in the movie, some men just want to see the world burn. And there's an anarchic aspect to Heath Ledger's Joker that really hasn't been reproduced or even equaled since for any movie villain. And Jared Leto's Joker with his cursive tattoos and um, his fucked up teeth and 
No, it just doesn't work. It comes off as a try-hard wannabe Joker. And Sal brought up a good point too, is why is the Joker even in the movie? Why couldn't Harley Quinn... I mean, why couldn't they just have had him in flashback scenes um, rather than have him as a main part of the movie? Because he's not actually, in a lot of ways, tied into the action there. Um, and, yeah, I think he's a little bit superfluous to the film. Also, the special effects, though, state-of-the-art, tend to be a little clichéd. The great big um, light thrusting in the sky with a great big uh, halo of debris around it, that kind of stuff, uh, is a big part of the film. And, you know, it doesn't work for the thing. A lot of the other characters are underwritten because people like Will Smith and Margot Robbie's... Um, Harley Quinn suck up all the oxygen and you don't get too much of that the exception being Jay Hernandez as El Diablo and he really kind of, in spite of the fact that his face is covered in tattoos, really brings an A-game piece of acting to the role and gives us a, a really rounded character even though it is somewhat underwritten and you know, that, that's kind of cool and all strength to Jay Hernandez for that, him and Viola Davis are the most valuable players in the movie but apart from that don't think it works. It is successful in the first weekend, but it may well end up like a lot of the other DC tentpole superhero films in that it doesn't have legs. It, things taper off pretty quickly after that first weekend. And we'll wait and see. I mean, I could be proved wrong, but I really think that unless they don't fuck up Wonder Woman, the um, DC extended universe is really going to diminish based on the studio micromanagement of things like Batman vs. Superman and Suicide Squad. So, what else have I been watching? And I'll go back to the page there. Um, I, uh, the only other thing I really want to talk about that I watched was, I watched The Sum of All Fears, the um, Tom Clancy adaptation with Ben Affleck and Morgan Freeman in it. And it's kind of a good action film. They blow up Baltimore. In fact, the bomb is at a place next to the hotel I stayed at when I was in Baltimore, in that um, baseball stadium there. And um, and that's a spoiler. I should have said spoiler alert, but what the fuck? The movie was made in 2002. But I think it kind of works. It's, you know, non-stop action. It's got some good character actors in it as well. Uh, Alan Bates playing the main villain, which is kind of interesting. And, uh, yeah, it kind of worked for me pretty well. There's a couple of other things I've watched, but I don't really feel the need to discuss them. They were kind of minor killing time watches rather than um, films that uh, deserve any oxygen. So now I'm going to take a break, and then I'm going to talk about the first of the two movies, being 1963's rom-com, Move Over Darling, starring Doris Day, James Garner, and the immortal and lovable Thelma Ritter. Hello, I'm Doris Day, and on the other side of this hedge, James Garner, who plays my husband, is making love to Polly Bergen, who plays his wife. Now, wait a minute, what am I saying? I'm his wife, and she's his wife. Hmm? That's right. And if you oh. want to have the laugh of your life, watch them unscramble this torrid triangle in their new movie, Move Over Darling. Nikki, no. Now, don't do that, Nikki. Darling? Please don't take advantage of me just because I'm a woman. You're my wife. One of them. Yeah, you know, I really have to do something about that. Yes. Come 
after the same husband up in the same honeymoon suite watch out for the fireworks fireworks it's an atom bomb co-starring Thelma Ritter I can't quite seem to adjust two daughters-in-law for only one son Fred Clark I don't know what you two or you three think you're doing but I insist that one of your women leave this hotel at once Don Knotts Elliot Reed Edgar Buchanan. Quiet, quiet. Can't we have a little order in here? And some air-conditioned hanky-panky with Chuck Connors as Adam in a South Pacific Garden of Eden. It's more fun than has ever been crowded into one picture. Shrieking Bedlam Move Over Darling is a 1963 20th Century Fox romantic comedy starring Doris Day, James Garner, Polly Bergen, Thelma Ritter, Don Knotts, Chuck Connors and Edgar Buchanan. It's actually based on a previous film, My Favourite Wife with Irene Dunn, Kerry Grant and Gail Patrick, which was made in 1940. The movie was actually going to be made um, a year or so earlier, before Move Over Darling was made. It was going to be called Something's Got to Give, which began shooting in 1962 with George Cukor directing. This one was directed by a guy called Michael Gordon. But the George Cukor directed one was going to star Dean Martin and Marilyn Monroe. She was fired from the project. Marilyn Monroe was fired from the project because she wasn't on set a lot and had various illnesses. And unfortunately, of course, died very soon after. So they rejigged and reworked the property and made Move Over Darling. But that's not the reason why I'm talking about it on the podcast. I've got a much more personal reason for talking about it on the podcast than you might think. My mother, who is 80, um, is suffering from dementia. It's not Alzheimer's, it's a different form of dementia where she loses words and she's losing concepts and she's losing people. And I called her this week, and her carer, she has a part-time carer that comes around and helps her bathe and cleans up around the place. It's one of the nice things the local council does. And the carer said, it's Terry. And mum said, I don't know any Terry. And that kind of hit me a little bit. It kind of does when in this sort of circumstance. Once she was on the phone to me, she remembered and everything was fine. But there's that initial kind of stab to their gut that happens with that kind of thing. 
Now, how this relates to Move Over Darling is, this is the very first movie I saw in a cinema with my mother. I remember some details of it. I remember the circumstances of it more than anything. Um, we had some spare money. My father had left a year or two before and was quite reluctant to pay uh, money he had to pay for my brother and myself at the time. And so when my mother did finally get some money, she tended to indulge a little bit. So one of the things she did was took me out to the cinema. And um, we saw, in I think it may have been the Embassy Cinema in Sydney, one of those great grand old flea pits that were built in the 1930s and uh, were still going in the 1960s and into the 1970s before they were all torn down and turned into apartment blocks and insurance companies. Uh, she took me to see Move Over Darling, and I remember that. I have strong memories of movies I saw when I was a child. Um, in fact, they're probably some of the best memories I have of my childhood due to the circumstances of it, which I've talked about in the podcast before. Now, I haven't tried to discuss this lately with my mother. I remember telling her a number of years ago that I had memories of this, but were I to do so now, she'd get confused. So I thought it was kind of right to talk about this movie because of the fond memories I have of it. And when I had that phone conversation with my mother this week, it kind of came back to me, this movie, and I decided I wanted to go with it. In the movie, Doris Day, who was in her late 30s at the time, plays Ellen Wagstaff Arden, a mother of two young girls named Jenny and Dee Dee, who was believed lost at sea following an aeroplane accident. Her husband, Nick, played by James Garner, was one of the survivors of the crash. After five years of searching for her, he decides to move on with his life by having her declared legally dead so he can marry Bianca, played by Polly Bergen, all on the same day. However, Ellen is alive. She was rescued and returns home that particular day. At first crestfallen, she is relieved to discover from her mother-in-law Grace, played by Thelma Ritter, that her ex-husband's honeymoon hasn't started so the marriage can still be annulled. So basically the movie starts in the court where a crotted crotchety old arthritic judge played by Edgar Buchanan who people might remember played um, Uncle Joe in Petticoat Junction back in the 1960s and he's doing great here really good comic timing really good irascibility um, he's, he's a lot of fun and in fact he um, steals the first little bit of the movie along with Thelma Ritter the character actors in this movie really do steal the show in um, interesting ways and Edgar Buchanan is trying to understand the fact that both that um, James Garner's character Nicky both wants to declare his first wife dead legally and get married to his second wife played by Polly Bergen in a very thankless role at the same time so he's kind of trying to understand that and he's getting annoyed because Polly Bergen's character Bianca has really loud bangles on her wrist that sound like cowbells. Um, so <laughs> that, that bit kind of works. There's some really nice lines in it. The comedy plays well. James Garner playing the straight man, which he often did to people who were very funny during his career. The Rockford Files, in fact, being part of that. He was a terrific straight man for comedy. Uh, and the other thing I found interesting in that scene was the county clerk gets played by a guy called Alan Seuss, who was one of the featured players in Laughing back in the 1960s. So there are lots and lots of people you know from television in the 60s in this. Edgar Buchanan from um, Petticoat Junction. You also see Alvy Moore, who was in Green Acres. 
John Aston turns up as an insurance guy in, in a small role. Don Knotts is in it as um, a shoe clerk. And and there's a whole bunch of um, other kind of character plays. You go, okay, geez, I know this guy. And um, they just kind of do their little bit. They do it incredibly well and they get off screen. But they fill out the gaps between this kind of love triangle in the middle of the piece, which is patently absurd. The whole thing is fairly absurd. But it really does work nicely having this supporting cast of people who can steal the scenes they're in and leave the main players to do what they're doing in the absurd way they're doing it. This being a Doris Day movie and a movie made predominantly for women, there are some soppy bits when she reunites with her daughters and um, you've got to kind of forgive that because you've got to remember you're playing to an audience of 1960s females and so parental bonding is a large part of their life and seeing it kind of ennobled on the screen with Doris Day playing the role it probably had an effect on my mother as well she had two children at the time and really she was um yeah her life with her children was threatened so I can see the attraction of this sort of movie to my mum at the time so the story gets set up um kind of nicely Doris Day's character survives and she's rescued by some sailors on a submarine. Obviously the submarine, for some reason, couldn't communicate and tell people she was still alive until it reached um, California for some reason. And sorry if you can hear that, but I'm stirring my cup of tea at the moment. It's my Doctor Strange cup with some mint matcha tea in it. Anyway, um, to get back to it, Thelma Ritter, one of, the, one of my favourite actors of all time, basically got ripped off by Hollywood because she was nominated in Best Supporting Actress roles six times for Oscars and never got one. It's one of the great injustices of Hollywood as far as I'm concerned that Thelma Ritter never got an Oscar. She could play tragedy, she could play drama, and in this one she particularly plays comedy. She does a fantastic double take when she first sees Doris Day's character, um, Ellen. And it's not kind of, it's not like anybody else's double take. It's a kind of unique double take, which is kind of cool. And um, the mother-in-law, Grace, Thelma Ritter playing kind of a posher role then. She normally played, says to her, um, do you want a drink? Because obviously, you know, things are kind of stressful. And she says to um, Ellen, do you want a drink? And uh, Doris Day, in a very Doris Day way, says, you know perfectly well I don't drink, and <laughs> already says you will. Um, there's some beautiful little bits of business like that. That's kind of comedy of manners and comedies of words. That comedic stuff plays really well, even to a modern audience, mostly given the skill of, of Thelma Ritter in this one. And it's one of her great roles. she just done uh, another Doris Day movie with Rock Hudson called Pillow Talk, where she has a great drunk scene with Rock Hudson. Um, just such a fantastically talented and naturalistic actor. She's just a treasure in this one. Now, Polly Bergen gets the really thankless role in this playing Bianca, the second wife. Uh, she's neurotic. She has a relationship with her psychiatrist. She's obviously got anxiety issues. And during the honeymoon night scenes, she has to play the character as incredibly horny. She, For some reason, they haven't had premarital sex. This, of course, being a 1960s movie, it's not even thought of as a possibility. Whereas in the real world, 
everybody was having premarital sex. They just didn't talk about it. And they used whatever protection there was at the moment. But this is a production code Hollywood film of the early 1960s. So the idea of premarital sex doesn't even occur to the characters, which shows that it's in this kind of hermetically sealed middle of the 20th century American white Christian world that Hollywood created for itself, assuming that everybody around was living that kind of world. One of the weird things that, that I, I'm trying to get through in my head about Hollywood at the time was, did they really think people weren't living their lives naturally when they made these sort of films? Did they really think they had to protect the masses from premarital sex and other realistic things that happen in human lives inevitably in their entertainment. So it just seems to us living in what we would hope is a more enlightened time, it just seems a bit silly. And it probably was, and I'm sure that there were a number of people at the time that thought it was silly. Then, of course, the other shoe drops in the plot when it's discovered that um, Ellen wasn't on the island alone. She was on the island with a, a strapping, muscular guy played by Chuck Connors, um, the name of Stephen Burkett, who they nicknamed themselves Adam and Eve, living on this island together. So you got these two healthy, attractive people living on an island together, even though Burkett is an arsehole. There's no two ways about it. He's not a nice guy at all. He's a kind of... Um, he's got that male entitlement thing that a lot of good-looking guys at the time had and indeed still do. And uh, even though he is kind of muscular and, and tall and um, all teeth and crew cut, you can kind of see why she would prefer James Garner, who's not as tall but still good-looking and athletic and all that kind of thing. Nonetheless, you get that sexual jealousy thing happening when um, Nick finds out about Burkett the sexual jealousy thing that you've inevitably got to have in these movies. Um, it could have been played as a French farce, and, and the French farces are an interesting genre of stage work and of movies as well, where people, except where they were translated into American movies, but in French farces, people were a little more accepting of human frailty, let's say, and they would have played things a little more sophisticatedly than they do in this film. Instead, you've got the sexual jealousy thing, and then you've got Doris Day trying to hide the fact she was on an island with an attractive guy by getting a shoe salesman played by Don Noss to pretend to be the guy she spent time on the island with. And there's an awkward and not particularly good scene with the three of them, Don Knotts, James Garner and Doris Day, where Don Knotts is trying to pretend to be Stephen Burkett and answering questions about the island really ineptly. It really doesn't play well, and um, it it's one of those weird things where the changes in society really make themselves apparent. This movie also big time fails the Bechtel test, which, as we all know, is that test where if a movie has scenes where women are only talking about a man when they talk together, there are no scenes of women just talking about things that interest them apart from men then a movie can be seen to kind of pass the Bechtel test. Whereas this movie fails entirely because all the women are talking about when two women are having a conversation is the James Garner character. Even though there are some very funny scenes in here and you've kind of got to gloss over some of the really dumb shit that happens in this movie. Like Doris Day's dressed in sailor clothing when she gets off the submarine because they didn't have any women's clothing and her hair's not done up at all. And she immediately flies to where her husband is having the honeymoon. And somehow in between rushing to the airport to catch a flight 
getting on the flight, getting off the flight, she's had time to have a wardrobe makeover and have her hair permed. You've got that kind of thing that happens in Hollywood movies all the time. And then you've got Fred Clark as the desk clerk at the, um, the desk clerk, Fred Clark, at the hotel, um, making moral judgments about the fact that James Brown has got two wives in two separate hotel rooms in the same hotel. And then you've got that kind of judgmental thing about, you know, you can't do that because for some reason hotel um, servants have the right to police morality. But they probably did too. There were probably laws about it at the time. But from our point of view, um, and, and in the 21st century, if a hotel manager came up and said that you weren't allowed to sleep with two women in one hotel, most reasonable people who sleep with two women would tell him to fuck off. But that that doesn't happen instead. Um, James Gunn is kind of embarrassed and tries to explain and it doesn't really work there's also that scene, I think the audio from it is in the trailer where Doris Day says to James Gunn don't take advantage of me just because I'm a woman, which is wrong on several levels, first off um, he's not going to take advantage of anybody but a woman, he's a straight man secondly, the idea of taking advantage of rather than having happy sex with somebody with whom you've been married and who you haven't seen in five years, which is a perfectly natural thing to want to do, as we all know. If I hadn't seen Sally for five years and we got together, we would definitely show some friendliness toward one another, uh, big time. So there are all these moral weights and moral judgment things laid against sexuality, which is really kind of weird to our eyes. And then you've got James Gunner going between the two wives in the two hotel rooms. Polly Bergen, who's married him in good faith, and her character, Bianca, is basically aching for it. She's horny. She wants to get in bed with her husband. She wants to fuck, which is a perfectly natural thing for somebody getting married to want. For a start, he hasn't told her that he has his previous wife still alive, and that doesn't play out until later in the movie. And Polly Bergen in this totally thankless role has to play the character as slightly dizzy, but also as incredibly horny, which is a not unreasonable state of physiology to be in on your honeymoon night. But it's played for laughs and she's kind of the butt of the joke in some ways, which is kind of uncool. Even though James Gunner technically is playing the straight guy to this stuff, there's a level of dismissiveness of the Bianca character that I'm really not comfortable with. The character's not a bad person. She's just um, neurotic. She's obviously got a, a few issues psychologically, which everybody has, of course. But everybody knows Doris Day and James Gunn are going to get together because they have kids. And this is a 1960s movie under production code. And the status quo has to be reinforced and maintained. And that's how, it, of course, it plays out. There's some comedy bits, which I actually remembered from first seeing the film. The bit in the car wash, which I won't do a spoiler on, I remember from it. I was surprised at the time, being maybe four or five at the time, that people had a swimming pool in their backyard. I thought that was a very, very cool thing to have. And they had a swimming pool in the backyard. And also, um, one of the reasons, maybe one of the reasons I liked James Gunner as an actor started at that time and I'm probably reading too deeply into my own psychology because one of the things about James Garner's character in this is he's a single father who's raised two kids and done a good job of it, and he's an upright guy. That wasn't consistent with my experience of fatherhood and my experience with my own father. So 
I can remember being kind of conflicted about that, but liking James Garner at the same time. I thought, and as, as a small child does, it was very unfair that those kids had a really nice father, whereas I did not. And that's what I think about children with those kind of experiences and those kind of backgrounds, is you can find yourself being jealous of things you see that are very positive in this kind of a movie. You can see how your parent isn't like the parent you see on the screen. And yes, they're idealised human beings in a lot of ways, but it does have an effect on kids. And I've got friends whose children are going through the same kind of thing with a, a marriage breakup and a difficult partner. And I can see the same things playing out that I went through, playing out for other people. And um, there are a lot more support structures than there used to be for this sort of thing. But nonetheless, movies and, and TV shows that show kind of loving families can be very confronting for some kids who have difficult backgrounds. And even though I, I did like this movie and there were a lot of things I enjoyed in it, there were also that, that other side of it as well, where um, my experience very much differed from the experience of the people on the screen. And I suppose you could make parallels to a number of other things as well. I rewatched the documentary The Celluloid Closet based on Vito Russo's book. And one of the things that a number of the um, gay people involved in show business who took part of the documentary said was that they really liked seeing and and they would go enormous distances to see characters like themselves portrayed on the screen. And for children who have abusive backgrounds, they don't actually see that on the screen. You don't see um, your own life reflected on the screen very much. And you know, I'm kind of deconstructing over the past few years, I'm deconstructing how I got to be the movie buff I am. And part of that is that childhood experience of seeing movies and seeing things that I like and that I was drawn to and attracted to, not in a sexual way, but just kind of intellectually and, and emotionally attracted to. Seeing those kind of things on the screen and how that made me who I am to a certain extent today. And it's a, it's a kind of interesting journey to go on. And rewatching a movie like Move Over Darling, which was a good memory of my childhood for me. You know, I went there, just my mum and myself, and we enjoyed the movie and had a good time with it. And she enjoyed the movie as well. And having that experience of a very grand movie palace, the embassy in Sydney, while I was doing that, had to have had a big influence. But I'm going to kind of leave Move Over Darling there. I'm not saying don't see the movie. Yeah, there's all that kind of 1960s sexist bullshit in there. But there are some really nice comedy roles. There are a whole bunch of good supporting players. The theme song is kind of cool. And um, James, watch James Garner playing the straight man throughout the film. And uh, he's very good at it. He's very good at physical comedy. He's also very good at creating that supporting space for the other actors, which I noticed when I was watching this one as well. But um, I'm going to leave it there. Uh, the only other thing I'm going to say about the movie, which is kind of funny, is the cinematographer's name was Daniel L. Fapp. F-A-P-P. Make of that what you will. Oh, yes, and another last thing. One of the interesting things I find in movies at this time is the incidental music in there. There's a song called Sand in My Shoes, which is played in the background. There's a theme to the TV series Adventures in Paradise, which plays over the kind of flashback fake memory scene of life on the island. Um, there's some kind of cool and interesting little bits. 
And I'm going to take a break now. And when I get back, we're going to talk about Breakfast at Tiffany's. But the music I'm going to play now is a version of Sand in My Shoes by Leslie Hutch Hutchinson, one of the great um, cocktail cabaret singers in England in the 1930s. And look up Leslie Hutchinson in Wikipedia or online on Google in general. And you'll find that he was one of the great bisexual coxmen of the first half of the 20th century. Sand in my shoes Sand from Havana Calling me to that ever so heavenly shore Calling me back to you once more Dreams in the night Dreams of Havana Dreams of a love I haven't the strength to refuse Darling the sand is in my shoes Deep in my veins the sensuous strains of the soft guitar Deep in my soul the thundering roll of a tropic sea Under the stars That was Havana you are the moonlit memory I can't seem to lose That's why my life's an aimless cruise All that is real is the feel of the sand in my Okay, so on to Breakfast at Tiffany's, a 1961 Paramount movie, which made a lot of money. It won two Academy Awards, both for original score and for the best song for Moon River. And I'll go straight into the trailer and then talk about it. (laughs) 
Won't you join me? Yes, join Audrey Hepburn as you've never seen her before. Kicking over the traces and bringing to life Truman Capote's breakfast at Tiffany's. I never could do that. Audrey Hepburn as Holly Golightly, who typifies and glorifies the glamorous playmates of this dizzily spinning world as she and George Peppard breeze through the glitter and shimmer of New York as it has never been captured before. You have a special invitation to attend Audrey Hepburn's open house on the wildest night New York ever knew. One thing, Fred, darling. I'd marry you for your money in a minute. You marry me for my money? In a minute. So I guess it's pretty lucky neither of us is rich, huh? Please, darling, don't sit there looking at me like that. Holly, I'm in love with you. So what? So what? So plenty. I love you. You belong to me. No. People don't belong to people. Of course they do. I'm not going to let anyone put me in a cage. I don't want to put you in a cage. I want to love you. Audrey Hepburn and George Papard, searching for love in the big town, but sharing only part of their lives until they find the deep, warm moment of truth that can't be hidden, even by the oddball antics on the brittle surface of New York. Okay, so Breakfast at Tiffany's, 1961, stars Audrey Hepburn, George Papard, Patricia Neal, Martin Balsam and Buddy Ebsen as Doc. It's not often I can genuinely say a movie's iconic in cinema, but this one definitely is. More for its style than its substance, which is kind of interesting. The Givenchy gowns that Audrey Hepburn wears, the little black dress that Audrey Hepburn wears, made also designed by Givenchy. The hairstyle, the long cigarette holder, that kind of thing. They've all become kind of style and fashion icons for over half a century, and that's a hell of an achievement. Uh, one of the other good things about this is the soundtrack by Henry Mancini. I actually listened to the whole soundtrack today, and it really is good. It's, it's a fantastic thing. It's got There are bits of it that are very kind of Martin Denny exotica. There's Moon River, which is an iconic standard now, and... and um, captures some of the wistful um, optimism and hopefulness of Holly Go Lightly, the character played by Audrey Hepburn. And Mancini's soundtrack really does capture the mood of the piece incredibly well. It lifts the material. And in a sense, it's a breakthrough um, for Mancini as well, who spent part of the 50s doing incidental music for things like Creature from the Black Lagoon movies and stuff like that for Universal. And this was, in a way, um, one of his big breakthroughs. He previously worked with the director, Blake Edwards, who directed Breakfast at Tiffany's, on Peter Gunn, a TV series that Edwards produced and directed some of the episodes of, starring Craig Stevens' uh, Private Eye TV show, which again had the kind of zeitgeisty style of the time and also had the virtue of having Lola Albright playing the girlfriend of the main character. Lola Albright is just such an underrated character actor. 
of the time who really never got the break she deserved in cinema or in TV for that matter. So of course it is based on uh, a novelette by Truman Capote. It does vary from the novelette in certain significant ways. But basically it's the story of a young writer called Paul Varjak who moves into an apartment building uh, and one of his neighbours is Holly Golightly. Uh, very beautiful and, and kind of vulnerable looking girl who lives by a slightly unusual means. She dates older men who give her $50 to go to the bathroom and to tip the people in the bathroom at the nightclubs they visit. And she keeps, of course, she keeps the $50 and uses that as a way of um, getting by in life. And she then dodges the advances of the men involved. Capote said that the character is essentially an American geisha. Um, And then there's the discussion along the lines of, um, is Holly Golightly a core girl? Is she not? The argument's been going around for over 50 years. Inevitably, of course, um, in a sense, Paul and Holly fall in love. It's revealed that Paul is being kept by an older woman, played by Patricia Neal, and that's why he has the nice suits and the nice apartment and things like that. He's a writer who's written one novel and then kind of hasn't really got to the second one completely he and holly become friends but there's a barrier between them she's reluctant to start a relationship because she wants to marry a rich person and move on from there she's kind of mercenary in a sense and as the story progresses and we find out more about her backstory including her previous marriage as a child bride to a much older man called doc played by buddy ebson um Things move around and you get the inevitable happy ending after a little bit of a a bump and they lose the cat. The cat's a very important character in the movie as well. And everything, everyone lives happily ever after except for the upstairs man, a photographer called Mr. Yunioshi, played in yellow face by Mickey Rooney. We'll get that one out of the way first. It shouldn't have happened. It was racist. All of the people involved with the movie said they would have cast an Asian actor to play the role rather than getting Mickey Rooney with buck teeth and slanty eyes to make him look like a World War II cliche cartoon caricature of a Japanese man. Um, he's Any of that, those scenes are an embarrassment to everybody there. Um, out of their time, they're it's a bad choice to make and it's deeply and, and utterly wrong Mickey Rooney tried to defend the role saying that a whole bunch of people supported it and a whole bunch of Asian people liked what he did at the time um, much later in life he was interviewed in 2008 when he was about 87 years old and he, found, he said he was very disappointed that um, people were so unkind about the role I don't think he quite understood how this kind of stuff matters to people of certain heritages. It goes back to what I was saying when I was talking about Move Over Darling earlier. Seeing yourself portrayed in cinema is important to people. Seeing the people of your ethnicity, seeing the people of your circumstance portrayed in movies is something that a lot of marginalised people don't see. And Asian people in cinema were seen that way. I mean, there were exceptions around the same time. A musical version of Rodgers and Hammerstein's Flower Drone song came out with an all-Asian cast. But that was the exception rather than the rule, really. Um, Just let's ignore Mr. Yunioshi, having said it's deeply and utterly wrong. 
But uh, the other part, the movie is an interesting one to look at from my perspective because it's beautifully put together. The direction is lovely. The actors are good. Um, George Peppard, a little understated uh, early in his, ro- his career. He did have problems later on, of course, with alcohol. And one of the things that other people who'd worked with him had said about him was that he is very much wanted his own way all the time on set. He really didn't take direction very well and his ego got in the way of his career in a lot of ways, which is a shame because I like Papad as an actor. I saw him in things like Banachek, which I enjoyed a lot back in the 1970s. In fact, I've got it on DVD now and I rewatched the episodes and it's a lot of fun. But um, I think he could have gone further had he been of a more sanguine temperament than he actually was as a human being. But he's good in this role and, and um, supports Audrey Hepburn. Everyone knows that Audrey Hepburn's on the pedestal in this role. And I think Papad played it right for that kind of thing. There are a bunch of character actors around too, leaving aside Mickey Rooney for a sec. Um, Stanley Adams playing Rusty Trawler, the fifth most wealthy American guy under 50, uh, who's one of the people that Holly sets her sights on because she needs to marry a rich man. There's a nice little bit with John MacGyver, another character actor who I like a lot, playing a desk clerk at Tiffany's Jewelry Store. And John MacGyver, who usually played irascible characters, um, fulminating minor management kind of characters, in this one he plays a kind of sweet and gentle man who helps them. Um, I really like John MacGyver in this role. I think it's, um, it's well played. And supports the other cast members. And it's just one of those little bits I like. Martin Balsam playing the Hollywood agent O.J. Berman. Who's kind of grooming Holly for some kind of career. And who helped her lose her country accent and become more sophisticated. Is quite good. He plays a certain type of Hollywood character well. And um, even though it is a broad portrayal. I think it's a bit of a different role from the Martin Balsam we know. From things like Psycho and any number of the um, Italian police dramas that he played in later in life and uh, yeah he's kind of cool in there and to give him his due Buddy Ebsen is very good as Doc Golightly as well um, he's much of course he's much older than Holly uh, they've been married Holly's had the marriage annulled but Doc is played poignantly but with a certain edge he tries to convince her by emotional manipulation to come back with him and even though at a certain level he is a um, poignant character, there's also a certain nastiness and a certain sense that he owns her, that the character gives off to a modern sensibility. That kind of teenage bride with a much older man thing also doesn't play particularly well. But I think Buddy Epson, and, and this was a role that got him the Beverly Hillbillies gig, which he moved into quite comfortably and uh, gave him a resurgence to his career. Of course, he was in The Wizard of Oz in 1939, but had to drop out playing the Tin Man because of an allergy to the aluminium makeup that was being used. And he had been a song and dancer, uh, song and dance guy in movies in the 1930s as well. But this was a kind of resurgence for his career later in life and led him on to the success of things like. Beverly Hillbillies and Barnaby Jones and all that kind of thing until well into towards his final years. And I think he, he plays it very well. 
given that the character is, in a lot of ways, not particularly likeable. Which brings me to the other point as well, in that Holly and Paul themselves are not unambiguous characters. They're not simply people we love. Paul, for a start, is a kept man. He's, he's basically yeah, living well because he fucks an older woman. So in that sense, he's a off-the-book sex worker. And Holly basically manipulates older guys into thinking they're going to get sex for her and then doesn't fulfill that part of the implicit obligation. Now, people have said that Holly, is Holly go lightly a cool girl or isn't she? And I've kind of tried to deconstruct that. First off, sex work, leaving aside moral considerations, is some is a job. Yes, people, I mean, some people work with their hands. In fact, some sex workers work with their hands. But you, I'm not sure that we should be as pejorative of sex workers as a lot of people are. I think that it's a choice that certain people make at certain times in their life. And if people live in a capitalist society, then sex work is a part of that. Uh, it's always been there. And as long as people do it as a free choice, it's a legitimate option. In the country I live in, in Australia... It's been decriminalised and regulated to a certain extent, even though there are still criminal elements in the sex industry. Being a sex worker is something that people are allowed to do without um, any problems with the law. And it's a choice that people make at certain times in their life to finance their life. So, leaving that aside, Paul is a sex worker. Holly may be a sex worker, which is an honest choice. If she's not a sex worker, then what she is is a con artist. She is conning these men by implying that she's going to have sex with them, getting money from them, and not fulfilling her side of the implicit obligation. In that situation, neither side is being honest. The guys aren't being honest about the fact that they want to have sex with her, by saying they want to have sex with her, and she's not honest by telling the guys that, no, I'm, you're paying for my company, you're not paying for me to have sex with you. So, in a sense, she's a dishonest character if she isn't a call girl who sleeps with these guys. But having said that, Audrey Hepburn is wonderful in the film. She's charming, she's winsome, she's got more charisma than any five other people at the time. And she really does play the character well. I mean, she plays the vulnerability of the character, she plays the toughness of the character in some scenes as well, and she plays the guitar, singing Moon River. So, um, this, of course, is the, is the kind of one central role of Audrey Hepburn's career that really put her up there as a kind of big star in Hollywood. She'd been working, of course, for more than a decade. You got to remember she was in the Lavender Hill Mob in 1951, um, and you know she she's wonderfully charming. She's beautiful. She's vulnerable. She's kind of that pixie dream girl. She's kind of first, really nailing it down. That kind of magic pixie dream girl stereotype that we have now is something that Audrey Hepburn created. And to do that, you need a few things. You need to be beautiful. You need to be charismatic, and you also need to be sexy, and she is. For somebody so skinny, Audrey Hepburn was a very sexy actress. So in a sense, Breakfast at Tiffany's is a perfect wave. Everything comes together well, apart from Mr. Uniyoshi. Everything comes together well. You've got the direction, you've got the wonderful music, you've got the star, you've got the adaptation of Truman Capote's novella 
which they do change around, but which does talk about a certain type of person in mid-century New York City, in the Upper East Side of New York City, and in the kind of um, more wealthy parts of New York. So you, that, there's that social climbing aspect. It talks to American aspirationalism, and it also talks to the romanticism, more the um, movie than the novella, but it talks about that romanticism. It is, in a sense, a love story between two sex workers. But nonetheless, in spite of that, it, it does work. It just kind of has that magic about it that when a, a number of things come together just right and a movie ends up being more than the sum of its parts. That's definitely what happens with Breakfast at Tiffany's. It really works. It's a great date movie. Um, Sal keeps saying you should watch it with me and I said well every time I say I want to watch it with you you're doing something else and she goes okay we'll watch it at some stage just like Casablanca she's never watched Casablanca with me because she hasn't watched Casablanca but um, well, yeah, it is a romantic film but there's also that kind of dark undercurrent to it as well as I've mentioned the business with Doc the business of how Holly earns a living and of course how Paul earns a living there are some um, kind of non-romantic and non-idealised parts to the characters involved, which maybe improve the film as well, having that contrast between the illusions that people have about themselves and the reality of their situation and of their past is an important part of Breakfast Activities. Of course, Blake Edwards went on to make a number of other successful films, Pink Panther series, um, and one of my favourite ones, which is SOB, I've talked about that, on the podcast earlier and it's just one of those movies that kind of hits the zeitgeist just right and re-watching it isn't an unpleasant experience even though I did kind of go okay well he's really a kept man and she's really taking advantage of these guys in a way that is dis- as dishonest as the guys are themselves in their urge to sleep with her but leaving those things aside it is a beautiful film it's beautifully shot beautifully made uh, and the production values are incredibly good. And, of course, you've got all of that iconic style and fashion stuff, which works really well. I think this is kind of one of those, in inverted commas, women's movies that plays well to men as well. Not only because um, Audrey Hepburn is beautiful and attractive and, and charming and all that kind of stuff, but I think um, you get sucked in by the story, you get sucked in by the music, and you get sucked in by that kind of elusive magic of Audrey Hepburn's. But anyway, I'm going to finish up now. It's time to knock, knock, knock that naughty clock that says it's time to go. And um, we do have another Patreon subscriber, so thank you to Kerry, um, who is going to be our studio accountant in the credits. Thank you for listening. Thank you to all of the Patreon subscribers who every month fork out pocket change so that um, I can keep the hosting going for the podcasts. And keep watching good movies, keep watching bad movies. If you see Suicide Squad, don't go in with high expectations. Anyway, I'll be back next week with another Martian Drive-In podcast and in two weeks with another Paleo Cinema podcast. Look after yourselves and stay warm if you're down here in the south. Stay cool if you're up north. And I'll catch you soon. And of course, here are the credits in the style of movie credits. After that, I'll play another track from Hank Mancini's fantastic soundtrack for Breakfast at Tiffany's. Take care of yourselves.
Thank you to all of the Patreon subscribers. And here are the credits in the style of movie credits to acknowledge and thank all of them. We have Tom, our focus puller, Sarah, our special effects technician, Ian, our caterer, Grant, our technicolor consultant, Claire, our script doctor, Gary, our prop master, Morris, our music director, Jan, our dialect coach, Armin, our key grip, Matt, our rattlesnake wrangler, Elaine, our scientific advisor, Julia, our casting director, Chris, our camera operator, Christopher, our gaffer, Miss Jane, the wardrobe mistress, Tansy, the foley artist, Alyssa, the location scout, Mark, our second unit director, Paul, our special makeup effects director, Tammy, our donut wrangler, Tim, our New York unit director, Rabbi Steve, our spiritual advisor, Steve, our script doctor, Dylan, our goat wrangler, Eric, our set security lead, Kerry, our second script doctor, Richard, our set photographer, and our extras, Kathleen, Mark, and David. And let's not forget Steve Sullivan, our director of Monster Effects, and Richard C., our transportation co-captain. So thank you very much to all the subscribers, and you too can subscribe at patreon.com slash paleocinema. Do, 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 do.